Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome back. This is our first public event of the new semester. We're pleased to uh, be back up and running and that you've joined us uh, today. Uh, just a couple of thank yous and then uh, an announcement. Uh, I want to start the semester the same way uh, we uh, end our semesters, uh, to recognize uh, the staff here. Uh, Soren Hansen has been working with the program this year. And then Jen Smith, who you all know, uh, who sure feeds you uh, like she feeds me and takes care of all of us. Um, these two ladies uh, do everything to make these programs happen, uh, including the food. And so I just want to start the semester by thanking them. Uh, and would you please join me in thanking them? Uh, one announcement. Uh, tonight at 7.30 in this room, uh, we're having uh, another event, we're sort of a two for today, uh, on the Trump impeachment. Two of our Notre Dame faculty members will be joining Professor Burns. Uh, it should be a very interesting conversation, you know, for obvious re reasons. Uh, so please come back uh, and and join us for that. Uh, I don't think we're feeding you dinner, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, Jen can only do so much, uh, but it should be a very good conversation. Uh, it'll be a panel, and the panelists will make a few comments, and then lots of time for discussion and. Q&A. So that's at 7.30 uh, tonight in, in this room. Okay. As you know, we have a tradition here of uh, inviting our students to not only ask the first question, but in, uh, introduce our speakers. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Alix Basden, who's an uh, economics and French major and a sophomore, correct? Okay. And Alix will introduce our speaker. Um, good afternoon, everyone. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Sarah Burns is an associate professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto and her doctorate from Claremont Graduate University. Her recent book, The Politics of War Powers, examines presidential unilateralism in the context of foreign attacks and threats. Her talk today is titled, Was the Killing of Suleimani unconstitutional or constitutional, <laughs> the politics of war powers. Please join me in welcoming Professor Burns. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you, Philip, for uh, uh, well, inviting me here. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm here mic, to right? speak I'm about the division sure of war powers between the executive and legislative branches no, a little in bit the realm of war. Louder. As I'm sure everyone knows, presidents for all of our you? lifetimes, really, have been yes. asserting unilateral mic, control I, over the initiation of hostilities, all right. both large and that small. Not Most recently, beginning. Trump has okay. ordered the very controversial lethal drone strike against Qasem Soleimani in Iraq. Previously, he has launched missile strikes against Syria, and we have boots on the ground, essentially, in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. We've been in at least one of these countries since 2001. Of these operations, what has been authorized by Congress? We went to Afghanistan to get the people connected with 9-11 and to monitor the countries that harbored them. It's safe to say that Al-Qaeda does not operate the same way in Afghanistan, and the Taliban is here to stay. Uh, the Iraq war ended in 2011, only be, to be restarted three years later out of fears for ISIS. And you may ask, what authorization was the president using when we ordered all these operations? So Bush, Obama, and Trump have all looked to the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs which were, quite, quite frankly, written in such a way to be so open-ended that three presidents over two decades have had the power they need to carry into operations anywhere in the world without being stopped in any meaningful way by Congress. So you may ask, then, does it have to be this way in the, in the war on terror? Well, terrorists are generally a stateless enemy and therefore comparatively mobile. That means that when they hit us, we don't have a return address when we're trying to figure out where to send the cavalry. That's a different kind of enemy than the US has been used to fighting with a military rather than, say, a police force. That would naturally lead to some errors in judgment and errors in execution when trying to fight this new kind of threat. That is not, however, the whole story. At present, what we see is a lack of well-defined and well-executed policy because presidents enjoy an irresponsible level of unilateral control in the realm of war. By having so much control and so little oversight from Congress or the people, they have become accustomed to reacting rather than planning. 
Without the deliberation provided by discussions with Congress, presidents have often been pushed and pulled by events rather than shaping them. Since the Cold War, Congress has also taken a backseat to presidents, allowing for the creation and execution of bad policy. In essence, due to the constitutional changes over the last 70 years, we lack the process necessary for creating grand strategy, let alone executing it. So what I'd like to do in this talk is lay the groundwork for how we ended up with a presidency that can use the power and reach of the US military so unilaterally. And I hope to explain how we've gotten here. Now fortunately for you, after writing this book, I'm fairly confident I have the answer. Uh, by looking back at the constitutional structure and the structural changes that occurred during the Cold War, I can show how the healthy but delicate balance of the separation of power was warped. Now to calibrate expectations, I do have a diagnosis. I don't think I currently have a viable cure. So as we move through history, I hope you'll see what we, how we start to get to this point, right? Now, in order to bring that to more light, besides discussing the separation of powers, there's a few historical examples I want to address, and then some more recent examples of Obama's uh, actions in Syria and Iraq in 2014, and then we'll dig into what happened with Soleimani. So first, to go back to the Federalist Papers, where we should all start, and isn't it also nice to read the words of statesmen in a time when we don't have very statesmanlike activity? We know that ambition should be made to counteract ambition, right? So we've, we're clear on that. And the second sentence there is that the interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. So this is the important part as well, because you have to have individuals in the legislative and executive branch and the judicial branch as well, but I'll mostly focus on the two political branches. You need them to have a sense of place and a sense that they have to guard their interest in their branch. And that doesn't mean that they have to selflessly devote themselves to, to, to America, to the mission of the, of the country, but they do have to ensure that they are jealously guarding their powers. Okay? So every partment, therefore, also has a will of its own, right? a natural way that it functions effectively. You want to have the legislative branch being slow and deliberative. That's how you create the best uh, laws. You want the executive to have some sort of energy and dispatch. That's how you ensure effective governance. Now, you also then see the Constitution shaping that interest. Because when you see people like, say, Barack Obama and Joe Biden going from the legislative branch, where they were very concerned about legislative oversight, to the executive branch, where they find this cumbersome and difficult, that is a natural change, right? Because they're going from one branch to another. So it's not really hypocritical. Now, then we get into Federalist 37, where we wonder, or Madison wonders, uh, perhaps too honestly, about whether or not it's possible to create a government where you have stability, energy, and liberty. Because he can say, well, look, we understand that monarchy works, right? They have stability, because they have uh, power in the hands of a few held for a long time. They also have energy, because they have power held for a medium amount of time in one set of hands. And he says, the problem is if we try and introduce liberty, what are we introducing? Now, we are introducing a more direct connection with the people, which is obviously a positive thing. But that also means that we're introducing the, the emotions, the passions of the people. And he's not entirely sure that once we bring that in, once we bring that into government, that we can then ensure a stability of the governance. And this is especially true because when people are fearful or really moved by emotions, they tend to ask their legislature to do things that aren't really in their interest, aren't really in the interest of the country. This is especially true in times of war. Because Madison says in this quote that war is in fact the true nurse of executive aggrandizement. Right? And so he says this because during that time the executive can bring all sorts of powers to himself and um, ensure that the country is going to be safe through his hands, through his actions. And by saying this and by doing this, he is then ensuring that all of the power is coming to him. And this is a natural part of the constitutional process. You want, during times of existential crisis, to have one person in charge who is effectively guiding the country. You also want the legislature to fall in line behind the executive and provide him uh, with what it is that he needs to do these kinds of things. At the same time, you also want, once the war is completed, for that power to drain from the executive branch and go back to the legislative branch and rebalance. So what we've seen over the course of US history, especially since the Cold War, is that power has collected into the executive hands and has not left the executive hands. So the problem for the Constitution is that it is used to, it is, a, it is capable of having power collect into the set of executive hands for the time of war, 
but then it has to be brought back to the legislature. Right? And the legislature is then in charge of getting that power back, right? jealously guarding the interests of its institution. What hasn't happened for the last 70 or so years is Congress hasn't tried to get the power back from the executive. Okay? So I want to give an example of uh, an older war, a pre-Cold War war, <laughs> pardon me for saying it that way, uh, the Mexican-American War. So the reason I like this example is because it is clearly presidential adventurism. Right? James Polk came into office saying, I am going to get parts of Mexico, I'm going to buy them from Mexico. When Mexico said, we're not going to sell them to you, James Polk marched his army down into Texas and said, all right, just stay here. The Mexicans will do something to us. So <laughs> Mexicans aren't budging. They aren't you know, uh, doing anything to harm the Americans. So James Polk says, go, go into the disputed area. And then he does the equivalent of what I used to do to my older brother when we had long car trips, which is that he essentially held out his hand like this to the Mexicans, and he wasn't doing anything. But the Mexicans then got so irritated that they struck first, right? And then Polk could go to Congress clutching his pearls and say, we have been attacked. We have to do something. Please give me a declaration of war. And again, the reason I like this war is because we see this. We see something the president shouldn't have been doing. And we know the president shouldn't have been doing it. And we know it was a war of an aggression. And then we see Congress saying, should we give him a declaration of war? And genuinely engaging with questions like, are these hostilities? Does this amount to war? What is the definition of hostilities? What is the definition of war? Was it actually sanctioned by the Mexican government? Or was this a rogue general who just decided to do something? And so while they're doing all this deliberation, you also hear what I call the hurrying language of war, which is the people who are beating the drum saying, all this deliberation is um, a waste of time. We have to defend our honor. We have to help and support our troops. You know, all you're doing is wasting time and making us look dishonorable. So it's not that they didn't have the hurrying language that we see when we're looking at um, moving towards war, moving towards military action. It's that Congress didn't allow that to stop them from deliberating. Right? Now, the other reason why I like this example is because it worked. Right? It wasn't supposed to happen. The president shouldn't have done this. It should have been a grand failure. But just because of fluke, it worked. So what we see then is the constitutional system isn't always going to punish bad actions on the part of the presidency. And they're not always going to reward good actions on the part of the legislature. But what we're trying to do is calibrate, right? Make the best possible situation where human folly and human adventurism is not going to be the thing that gets us into military conflicts. OK. Next uh, historical example is I want to show, hopefully you guys can see this well enough. Um, so this is the declaration of war against Japan. So one of our last declarations of war, so the last war that was declared in the United States. So I just want to read uh, a bit of this and then go through what this is showing us about congressional responsibility. So joint resolution, yada, yada. Therefore, be it resolved by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that the state of war between the United States and Japan, which has been thrust upon the United States, is hereby formally declared, and the president is hereby authorized and directed to employ the entire naval and military forces of the United States and the resources of the government to carry, the, sorry, to carry on war against the imperial government of Japan and to bring the conflict to a successful termination. All the resources of the country are hereby pledged by the Congress of the United States. So first, the president is hereby authorized and directed. Okay? So he doesn't have this power prior to being authorized by Congress, meaning that it is not contained within the executive to bring us to total war. Second, he is directed, meaning that once they have given him this grant of power, he has been told how to use it. Okay? So he's been told to employ the entire naval and military force in the US uh, and the resources of the government to carry on war against Imperial Japan. So we know what he's allowed to use and who he's going to fight. Okay? And then finally, um, to bring the conflict to a successful termination. Okay, so we know what the end point is, which is that we no longer have a hot conflict between the United States and Japan. And so they're going to pledge all the resources of the country in order to get that done. So we know what he's authorized to do, what resources he has to do it, who he's authorized to fight. Um, when, the, when the authorization ends, what, ends the the, what brings it to a termination, and then finally, the fact that Congress is on the hook. 
right? Congress is on the hook for providing him with what he needs. Congress is on the hook for ensuring that, that they provide him everything that's possible in order to do this. And that means that they are able to be held responsible in a way that we don't hold our congressmen and senators responsible anymore. So that's how it used to work, right? Not always perfect, not always well balanced, not always deliberative, but generally there's a balance between the executive and legislative branches in the realm of war. So what happened? Okay, so there's only two slides and this is a whole chapter of my book. So I apologize if I go a little bit too far into it. So first we have the destruction of the European uh, states. What I mean by that is that if you look at Europe post-World War II, you have liberal democracy, in essence, on one side, and you have communism on the other. Both are meta-narratives. Both are saying, we are the last and best form of government, and so everyone should fall to our form. Which means that the United States, in being the only power that still had a really functioning military uh, and the capacity to use it, was the country holding uh, the bag for liberal democracy in contrast to communism. So that was a big weight on the United States and the United States could feel that. Adding to this burden was the fact that we had created nuclear weapons. And we weren't uh, very, we were very soon followed by the Russians, who, Russian Soviets, who also got the bomb in 1950. So when you combine the destructive power of nuclear weapons with the fact that another meta-narrative who thinks that we should be destroyed so that everyone can enjoy communism, you can see why it is that we start to see the balance tip between the executive and legislative branches. Because again, the legislature by nature is slow and deliberative, and the kind of destruction that you can engage in when you have nuclear weapons, and when you have these meta-narratives thinking they should do what's best for all of mankind, you really want one person to be in charge of when and where we're using military force. So Congress took a back seat and said to the president, you know, here is the football, please take care of it. And um, the president in turn said, thank you. I very much enjoy having all this power. I'm very much going to use it unilaterally. Uh, then you combine that with the creation of the CIA and the increased size of the US military. And you not only have a president with all of this power being seated by the legislative branch, but you also have a president with uh, a secret force that he can deploy internationally to do secret missions. And you also have a huge military force that is a large peacetime standing army. So this is why, for example, Truman could just unilaterally initiate the Korean War. He had a huge standing force in Korea already. So he didn't have to go to Congress. He didn't have to talk to them. He didn't have to convince them that that was something they should do. He could just accidentally be brought into this war, and it was very accidental. Okay. So. Some people like to say, I'll watch my time. Some people like to then look to the war powers resolution as some kind of limitation on President. After Johnson and Nixon, all the abuses with um, Vietnam and Watergate. And so you see Congress sitting down and saying, all right, we've got to put the imperial presidency back in the box. So how do we start this? First, let's say down and saying, all right, we've got to put the imperial presidency back in the box. So how do we start this? First. Let's say when it is that presidents can start wars. So they say, if there's a declaration of war, he's good to go. If there's statutory authorization, be it an authorization for the use of military force or other kinds, also fine. Finally, if there's, an, if there's a threat or an attack against America, okay, or American assets and um, you know, bases abroad. Now, on a plain reading of the constitutional text, this seems like a valid interpretation of what presidential war powers look like. What they did, however, was they didn't keep the door closed there. They opened it a little bit by saying, but if, if, which he's never going to do, if he starts a war or a military operation, he has 60 days okay, to conclude that operation. After that 60 days, he has another 30 days to draw down the uh, military force, and that's fine. So they open the door a crack, and all they require of presidents who do this is to report to Congress you know, what their authority is to do these kinds of things. And so you think to yourself, well, wait a second. You just said in the first part of this that the only time he can engage in military operations is if you have authorized it or if there is some sort of attack. 
right? And again, if you look to the plain reading of the text, if you look to the founders, that's generally the consensus. And so what we see is that Congress has changed its incentives and thought, you know what, let's just give him power over small operations. That's fine. You know, we don't need to be in control of those things. So what looks like an attempt to contain the presidency is actually a tacit or implicit belief that the president has some unilateral power in the realm of war. Okay. And so then we get to the war on terror and the kind of steroid shot that we get to unilateralism in the presidency. So let's look at the most egregious or piece de resistance of congressional neglect, which is the authorization for the use of military force in 2002. So there's a variety of other problems with them, but essentially what happens is by the time we get to 2002, to set the stage a little bit, it's October 2002. We've had the drumbeat of we have to go to war with Iraq. They might have weapons of mass destruction. And it's midterm election year, right? It's a year after 9-11. So Democrats, again, are being hurried along by war language. They're being called unpatriotic. They're being called soft on terrorism. And so Democrats who want to get back to their issues are saying, oh, let's just vote for this thing and get back to the campaign trail. And Republicans, conversely, are trying to put it as a noose around Democrats' necks and saying, of course we're going to vote for this. Of course we have to defend our country against Saddam Hussein. And the country was behind it, too. If you look at polling data, well before we got anywhere close to passing the, the AUMF in 2002, the country was fine with going into Iraq. The country was fine with overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Right? It was a very different time than today. So the president has on his side uh, an election, the people, and his whole party. And he gets this. Okay? So this says that the President of the United States is authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he determines. Okay? So they're not directing him to do anything. They're directing him to determine what he thinks is, a, is good. And so he's, a, he, uh, so he's using the forces to determine what is necessary and appropriate. Okay? So we all know from Article 1, or maybe some of us know from Article 1, that the Necessary and Appropriate Clause can be a very capacious clause, right? You can interpret it all sorts of ways. And then we get even more uh, ambiguity, right? So we can defend the national security of the United States against the continuing security threat posed by Iraq. Now, national security is a term that presidents throw around, mostly presidents throw around, when they don't want to tell you what they're doing or what exactly the national security interest is. Because it sounds important, right? We do want our nation to be secure. If it's in the national security interest of the nation, then go ahead and do it. But what's contained in that, right? Without Congress kind of debating and deliberating and thinking through what's contained within national security, it's hard to really tell. So then finally we get to the national security threat posed by Iraq. So it's not posed by Saddam Hussein's government, Saddam Hussein, the Ba'athists. It's posed by Iraq. Okay? So this is then a broad grant of power to address any issues posed by Iraq for how long? Right? There is no end date here. There's no containment of what the president is authorized to do. So no wonder presidents into the Trump presidency have said, yeah, I've got the authorization. It's right here. Right? Okay, um, I'll just move through because I'd like to get to plenty of time for um, the current issues. So first to paint a kind of another picture of what happened. Essentially we have Obama coming into office saying, I'm going to draw down the wars, I'm going to get rid of the war of choice and you know, engage directly in the war of necessity. So eliminate the war in Iraq, but continue with the war in Afghanistan. Okay. But by June of 2014, uh, ISIS had uh, become such a threatening force that they were able to take Mosul. And that means that they had access to a variety of um, resources, as well as the capacity to potentially really hurt a large quantity of people in uh, Iraq. So Obama switches from, you know, ISIS is the junior varsity version of um, terrorism to America has an a, a obligation to lead, and we are going to go in, and we are going to fight this you know, terrorist threat. And what he did at first, so in June when he starts bombing, is he gives discreet uh, letters to Congress. And what I mean by that is he says, okay, we are engaging this bombing campaign on, conceptually, June 21st. We're engaging this bombing campaign on August 10th. We're engaging this, uh, this bombing campaign on August 30th. And the reason he was doing that is because he was trying to stop the war powers resolution clock from starting. 
right? Because you only have 60 days if you're trying to stay within that bound. So he tries to do that, and he realizes by September it's not going to work, right? ISIS is too powerful. We're not good enough at this. The, don't even get me started on the Iraqi military. It all wasn't working. So he says, all right, <laughs> I need a different path. And so he looks back to the 2002 and 2001 AUMFs and says, those give me authorization to go after ISIS, which again has no connection to 9-11 and is not directly related to the threat of Iraq, and al-Nusra, which is directly related to al-Qaeda, but not at all directly related to the 9-11 attack. And the reason he could get away with this is because the congressional incentives have changed so much that they didn't want to take him to task. Even Republicans didn't want to take him to task, as we see from this quote from Jack Kingston, which is the perfect embodiment of how it is that Congress thinks about, especially smaller level military operations. So he says, Jack Kingston says, a lot of people would like to stay on the sidelines and say, just bomb the place and tell us, how, tell us about it later. Announce it if it goes bad and praise it if it goes well and ask him what took so long. Okay, this is our Congress. We have voted for these people. Okay, so let's get into, so I'm gonna apologize for the next slide because it's um, a lot of information. Uh, and I, if I gave this to my students, they would look at me like, why are you doing this to me? Um, but it's good to have it all on one slide. So I know, I'm sorry. First, we end operations in 2011. So this is important because what happened when we end operations is that Obama really didn't want to be in Iraq, and he was very happy to pull out even when things were very troubled. And as he was pulling out, that meant that there was more instability both in Iraq and in the region, and there was instability while they were housing in a variety of prisons a lot of ex-Bathists and a lot of ex-AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq members. So these guys are just sitting in prison all together being like, so, how did you terrorize people? And they're doing this while, again, we're back home, not paying too, too much mind to Iraq, and because of the instability and because of the inclination of people. And they're doing this while, again, we're back home, not paying too, too much mind to Iraq, and because of the instability and because of the inclination of these people to get out of prison, they were then a series of jailbreaks. Right? And so ISIS came out of the prison system and the lack of capacity to hold all these people in these prisons. And that's how we get this like, new monster that we have to then deal with. Okay, So the other side of it is the Iranian side of it, which is that Iran has, since the US occupation, we just found this out in November, since the US occupation, been slowly but surely uh, reaching its talents into Iraq and trying to get broader regional influence. Now that's been known, but we didn't know to what extent their military and especially their, their version of the CIA had been infiltrating Iraq. So <laughs> 2014, we redeploy because of ISIS, because of this problem that we created, truthfully. And, oh, this is being recorded. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> so I have 10 years, fine. Uh, so this problem that we created, and I am nervous, uh, so <laughs> I'll recover. Uh, and so we started addressing the problem of ISIS. Now, while we're addressing the problem of ISIS, we also have the Quds Forces, which is the you know, uh, Iranian version of the Navy SEALs, also attempting to address the ISIS problem because it's an all hands on deck kind of situation. And so we're not fighting alongside the Quds Forces, but we do know that they're operating and they know that we're operating. So great. By 2017, we recapture Mosul. Uh, the threat of ISIS is gone, right? Everyone can be satisfied and calm. The difficulty now for the Iraqi government is that they have been able to continue and continue being corrupt and not very good at governing because of all of these threats, because of the threat of Al-Qaeda for a long time, then the threat of um, Sunni and Shia um, civil war, and then finally the threat of ISIS. By 2019, however, these threats have been uh, for the most part, eliminated or reduced. And so now the people are saying, um, we don't like the corrupt government. We don't like the fact that they seem to be making billions of dollars in oil and the roads aren't fixed. And we don't like the Iranian influence. So in October of 2019, we see Qasem Soleimani quietly slip into Baghdad to try and help with um, ruling at the time. Because Maldi was, Maldi was just not doing a very good job. So what he and Mahdi then cook up as an idea is that they're going to have a whole bunch of Shia militias fighting against Americans. 
right? And saying that the reason that they're so upset, the reason that we have all these protests, is because of Americans' continued presence. Okay, so you have people who are genuinely upset about the government, sort of a, a you know, a, a self-rising protest, right? Grassroots protest. And then you have a protest that's to a certain extent ginned up by the Iranians and the Iraqi government in an effort to kind of counter this narrative and say the real problem is the Americans. Okay. So this then uh, results in Shia militias uh, killing an American contractor. And we also see that there isn't going to be a, a clear end to Shia militias meddling with Americans and trying to kind of turn the tide towards Americans being the problem. So very soon thereafter, uh, Trump, again, with not a great deal of input from even people within his own cabinet and without seeming to have a long deliberation about this attack, just decides that they're going to, I'm going to be trying to be very careful with my wording here, have a lethal drone strike against Qasem Soleimani. Now, he is in Iraq. Okay, wait, wait, I'm going to wait for that. All right, so we decide that, right? Iraq with terrifying accuracy, has a missile strike against US bases in response. And then the, I apologize guys, I can't remember his name now. Sorry, one second. I can't remember, the foreign minister, whose name I can't recall. Sorry, uh, Javed Zarif. Uh, the foreign minister, Javed, Javed Zarif, tweets that Iran took and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, and they would not seek to escalate war, but will defend themselves against aggression. Okay, we all back away from World War III very carefully. Everyone's happy. Unfortunately, there was then the next day human error, where they downed flight PS-752. Okay, and this was entirely human error. The person thought that it was a military target coming towards Militarily sensitive, uh, a military sensitive base in Iran. And so that's the kind of thing that can still start World War III, right? And it was only because of a variety of factors that that didn't then end up being a much broader conflict, despite the fact that, you know, 176 people were killed, right? Accidentally by a, a member of the Iranian military. So, legality. <laughs> the reason you're here, presumably. Um, was it an assassination? No. Assassination has a specific legal definition, and that specific legal definition is killing a person, a prominent person, for political or ideological reasons. Now, you can quibble with whether or not that's why we killed him, but that's not how the Trump presidency presents it. So instead, they present it as a lawful killing during an armed conflict. Okay. And officials at the U.S. State Department said that the administration explored other ways of stopping Soleimani, but they could not determine any other way. Now, was it legal under the U.S. domestic law? Mm -hmm. It's an exercise of the president's constitutional authority as commander-in-chief to use force in the national interest. Okay. So Trump can make this claim, or rather others can make this claim before him, because, and this is the important part, the legal view as to what is permitted by law in terms of the use of military force is pretty much only defined by the executive branch itself. Okay? So the executive branch decides whether or not its actions are legal. If everyone else isn't thinking like, doesn't this sound like Nixon? Yes, it does. But this is just the way our presidency is run and has been run for a long time. So perhaps due to the ambiguity of what, if anything, the Trump administration can use as legal justification, they've been comparatively quiet. We know that DOD said something. We know that uh, Trump claims Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attack against Americans. And they also say that because it was in Iraq, then the 2002 AUMF covers their actions. So again, for clarity, this isn't new. This unilateralism isn't new but his lack of justification is. Most other presidents have kind of put a fig leaf over just you know, exercising prerogative powers by attempting to kind of go within the sphere of you know, war powers resolution and trying to make some sort of claim. Okay. Now, despite the fact that presidents haven't really been held accountable, we don't see Congress trying to hold them accountable when they have a chance. Now, it's certainly the case that con congressional investigations into war 
um, slowed down the Bush administration. Uh, but even then, the House still passed the surge in 2007. And similarly, despite claims that Obama would draw down US commitments abroad, when he came into office, we see that he had the surge in Afghanistan and then industrialized the drone warfare program. And you can see just the amount of drone warfare that he engaged in. Um, now, he certainly deployed fewer members of the US military abroad, but he also dramatically increased the power of the CIA to carry out all sorts of authorizations, operations abroad with little oversight from Congress. To the point where Rosa Brooks, who had been working in the Obama administration in 2013 said, right now we have an executive branch making a claim it has the right to kill anyone anywhere in the world for secret reasons based on secret evidence in a secret process undertaken by unidentified officials. So at present, those secret powers and unchecked powers are in the hands of a man who feeds off of the partisan divisions in the country and feeds into those divisions, while demanding loyalty from those on his team and encouraging anyone he can to attack those who would defy him. So can Congress reassert itself in the face of this president and this partisan atmosphere? It's unlikely. Therefore, decisions about how the US is going to navigate the complicated relationship with a regional power like Iran that has powerful friends with no affection for the United States is in the hands of one man, Donald Trump. And so with that, I'll ask if there are any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Burns. As, as you know, we have a tradition here of inviting uh, undergraduate students to ask the first question. So the undergraduates have a question, and then we can open up. And then if you could stand up and uh, tell us who you are Hello, I am Nicholas Holmes. I'm a junior studying political science and history with a minor in constitutional studies. Um, so you mentioned that with the downing of the airline by the Iranian government and due to human error the day after their missile strike, a variety of factors um, caused that to not escalate into a larger war, which it otherwise could have. Um, can you elaborate as to what those factors um, you think might have been? Sure. Uh, for one, there were a the predominant number of people who were on there were Iranians, and so the Iranians would then ask their government to be the ones responsible. The other people who were on that flight were Canadians, predominantly, and uh, Canadians are not inclined towards uh, aggression, I guess I'll say, broadly. I'm Canadian, in case that you're like, oh, she's racist against Canadians. Uh, uh, so, you know, if there had been Americans on the plane, would there have then been a call for Trump to escalate the war? Probably. And similarly, if there had been, I think there were a few British people on the plane. If there had been more British people, would there have been a call to escalate? Possibly, right? So because there were limited numbers of Europeans, limited number of, and there were no Americans, and the people who were implicated were either nationals or people who were from Canada, then it just didn't cause the, the military drumbeat that it would have caused otherwise. Can you contextualize a little bit the massive increase in drone strikes under Obama? Was that Could that be reasonably contextualized in the scope of ISIS and other terrorist threats? Or was it an increase without a real increase um, in threats that warranted the increase in drone strikes? Yeah, interesting question. So the, the objective in the Obama administration, and we saw this from the leaked um, Afghan papers early December, I think, was to try to get a smaller US footprint. And they thought that by doing that, you would have less of a negative reaction to Americans. And so that objective seems very logical, right? Which is that you are um, radicalizing people because they see Americans walking around, you know, kind of potentially harassing people, all these kinds of things. It's very hard to contain a military force and make sure that they do nothing negative to the local populations. So if you take those forces away and you just have drone strikes, right, very pinprick type situations, then it seems as if that would stop radicalizing people and that would reduce the amount of people saying, look, Americans are to blame, like let's all get together and fight the Americans. The difficulty with the way that drone strikes are carried out is that we don't tell people in the community who we're hitting or why we're hitting them. On top of that, all you see from the community was, you know, road and what used to be a car and um, presumably humans who were in the car, and you don't know why those people were hit. Furthermore, you have individuals who are respected and well-liked within their communities, but are 
actually carrying out operations that are bad for our, to use the term that I just said you shouldn't use, national security. So what Obama was therefore doing was creating a situation in which people were no longer resentful of the presence of Americans. They were resentful of the fact that Americans were too, too high and mighty to fight. Right? So you can't attack a drone. You can't fight back against a drone. All you can do is hope that you aren't harmed by one. And so it just kind of switched the way in which people thought about the US military from being negative because of our presence was there to negative because we refused to even stand you know, eye to eye and, and face them. So the drone program under Obama essentially replaced Guantanamo Bay as a recruiting technique. Is the underlying problem from the perspective of the original Constitution such the broad authorizations in 2002 and 2003? Is that what you'd pinpoint? I mean, are, um, it's, the, yeah. the answer to the question that you asked it was the killing constitutional. Uh, it seems to be a, a sort of, no, it's against the spirit of the Constitution, but it's not but by exactly the letter of the law. Yeah, because essentially what happened is that the president got control over what it means for the president to operate in the military sphere. And so once you say that the presidency is the only, or the president and the executive branch are the only ones who get to decide what is or is not constitutional, then they can, they can make up whatever they want in terms of what is legal. So it's not that the 2002 AUMF was too broad. It was, and that's a problem, but Congress could have corrected that, right? And we, we see a few attempts at trying to correct that that don't work very effectively because they can't get enough um, support for some kind of restrictive AUMF that would, or a sunset clause for the 2001 or 2002 AUMF. So the real problem is that incentives in Congress have made it so that they don't want to hold the president accountable. And so that's what goes against the spirit of the Constitution is that you no longer have ambition counteracting ambition. And no incentive to correct this. And no incentive to correct this, yeah. Because it's, it's not in the incentives of the members of Congress to engage very seriously with questions about foreign policy. Because we as voters don't reward them for that. And we only reward them for you know, bringing more jobs to our district or making sure that the economy is running fairly well. And we do, however, blame them when wars go badly. So if they stay hands off from war and say, like, well, I told the president he shouldn't be doing this, even if they said quietly to the president, like, go ahead, um, then you know, they would be held accountable if they actually did something, rather than just staying on the sidelines. Uh, another question, yes. I'm sure if I took your logic apart individual by individual, I'd come up with the answer, but maybe you can give me a shortcut. What is the difference between the killing of Saddam Hussein and now Soleimani? Um, it's a very, yeah. Bin Laden, bin, bin Laden and Soleimani? Um, well, Bin Laden had very clearly and very definitively taken responsibility for the attacks on 9-11, the attacks on the USS Cole, the attacks on our uh, embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and he celebrated these things. So comparatively, Qasem Soleimani is a legitimate actor in his government who is doing things that we don't like that go against our troops, but he thinks are in the legitimate interest of his government and, people he, and governments that he supports. So in the same way that like, you know, we're not going to get into a hot conflict with Russia, but let's say you know, the US is meddling in Crimea, right? So the Russians could say that if we were meddling in Crimea and then we got hit, like one of our generals got hit, that that would be our fault, right? It's not, it's not legitimate for us, us to be there. And so Qasem Soleimani could easily claim, whether we see it legitimately or not, but he could claim that we didn't have a legitimate reason to be in Iraq because we had left, the war was over, you know, Saddam Hussein was, was gone, so why were we still there, right? And so that would be the counterclaim. So it's, it's, it's a grayer area, but compared to Osama bin Laden, who had directly attacked us and had claimed, claimed credit for attacking us, they were very different actors, right? And he was not a state actor. He was not attached to a government. So we also attach very different things to a non-state actor like bin Laden versus someone who was a legitimate member of the Iranian government. Yeah, it's a good question. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Biagini. I'm a senior here. Uh, so I just had a quick question. I understand that you're saying the main problem is that president has too much power during war times. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you lay the groundwork of the cases, Cold War, World War II, and all the way up to Bush, you know, Obama, Nixon, and all that. Um, and then your conclusion is that the uh, killing of uh, Soleimani. What, what, yeah, Soleimani, yeah. Soleimani, sorry. Uh, was unconstitutional. Or somewhat of, I guess, like not a legitimate reason for like what the founders Yeah, I, I like found. how Philip put it. Is that it's uh, within the letter of the law, but against the spirit. Right. Um, so uh, I understand all that, but do you have a certain recommendation to address those, uh, address this current solution? Is it so Congress, if it's unconstitutional or something like that, then Congress needs more influence. Or if it's yeah. a legis maybe it's a legislative, like legislative issue, like there's too much power there. Is it, I, I'm just, I, I would, if I were to say that I agree with you, I, where exactly does that go from there? I understand, yeah. Um, so this is why at the beginning I said I had a diagnosis and not a cure, or a viable cure. Um, so the non-viable cures are essentially threefold. Um, the first non-viable one is to uh, drain the poison from our partisanship. Right? Part of the difficulty with the partisan era that we're in is that we don't realize that most people who are against our views actually genuinely want what's good for America, and they just disagree with us about how to get there. Right? So a good example is um, Paul Ryan, who people thought you know, just hated the poor, you know, hated people who couldn't like pull themselves up from their bootstraps, and it wasn't at all that, right? He just genuinely thought that if you take the the government in a different direction, that would actually benefit even the poor, even the people who had been trodden upon in the in the economy, and people don't see that in him, right? Similarly with Nancy Pelosi, people don't see that she's genuinely trying to do what she thinks is in the best interest of the country, and while she might look uh, like she's uh, sharp elbowed and you know. Uh, feisty rather than trying to do what's constitutionally just, she's probably trying to do what's constitutionally just. And so without the capacity to see that other people are acting in good faith and with the best interest of the country at heart, it's very hard for us to think that we should do anything besides beat the other guy, right? So much like um, I, by marriage, have to support the uh, New York Giants, so I have to therefore hate the Cowboys, right? That's just a requirement of my marriage, I understand that. But there's nothing about the cowboys that I inherently think are like bad or that they should be punished. And so the problem is we don't think of other people who disagree with us that way. Now, that's, that's obviously, I'd say, the easiest lift of the three things that I'm going to mention. Uh, the second, so it's already, we're already getting farther down the road. Second is get better voters. And I don't mean by that that, you know, we should all be not allowed to be voters, or there should be some sort of like, you know, civics exam before you vote. That's not the worst idea, but um, you know, there should be some sort of sense amongst the voters that we actually care what people are doing in the realm of foreign policy. And one of the ways that you can see that we don't is when people suggest healthcare plans, then we say, "How are you going to pay for that?" Right? Or tax cuts? How are you going to pay for that? Whereas when people say, "Well, you know, we need to go to a war in Afghanistan," people are like, "Okie dokie." And we don't ask where the money's coming from, how it's going to happen. And even if you look at presidents, like I've read a ton of you know, presidential orders and you know, people who've worked in administrations, and people who work at like DOD, even at state, are furious when presidents say, all right, I want you to carry this out, because they're like, where are we getting the money? Like, where, where, how are we going to pay for this? So if voters paid more attention to like the cost of military operations, even the military in general, I think that would be very helpful for ensuring that we don't have costly and unnecessary programs. So the third biggest lift uh, would be reinstating the draft. Hear me out. So I know, the murmur always happens. So the reason you reinstate the draft, again, not because then we have more people in war and that's great, it's because if you reinstate the draft and you have especially um, both genders in the draft, then people are all of a sudden much more concerned about when it is and how it is that we use the military. Because it means that their you know, little Billy or little Susie are going off to war. And so if you look at the reaction to the Vietnam War versus the reaction to the, react to the Iraq War, they're night and day, right? The Vietnam War had a groundswell of uh, discontent and a groundswell of people saying this is not right and that's because they were the ones who had to go. So I'm not suggesting that this is a, a good way of uh, carrying out your military nor am I suggesting that we should all be uh, forced to be part of the military but if you did have a draft 
it would make it a lot harder for people to say, um, well, you know, it's not my responsibility, right? It doesn't affect me. And so that's a way to get the better voters, maybe not less hyper-partisanship, but it does get you better voters because they're more thoughtful about foreign policy and foreign military operations. Okay. Yeah? Not a thumatic Congress that would reassert itself in foreign policy? So uh, they need too much to ask for. Uh, they need the voters to tell them to do that. And so I don't think they're going to do it without the voters telling them because they're mostly um, focused on re-election. George Bernard, alum from South Bend. Um, uh, Iran, then Soleimani as an official there, uh, feels that the United States should not be in Iraq. But no. the United States, I would think, feels that Iran should also not be in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon or Yemen. And yet Soleimani is supplying... Yep them with these explosively formed penetrators, which are much more lethal than yeah. the IEDs of old, the improvised explosive devices. So would that be a rationale for, because he's supplying these penetrators to non-state actors as well as people in, you know, Iran has basically invaded Iraq. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I, I do agree that he's a bad actor who was doing bad things for uh, American interests. The difficulty is when you say, all right, here is this legitimate state actor who is doing things that are against our interest. We're going to assassinate him. Sorry, uh, we are going to carry out a lethal drone strike against him in order to stop his actions and stop his state. That, that doesn't drain the poison, right? That just makes other people say, well, we're going to pick up his fight. And that's exactly what's happened, right? It's not that Soleimani is killed, you know, Kud's over. Uh, there's just the, the deputy, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but the deputy, his deputy just took over. So it's not as if this action then stops Iran from doing those things. This action could potentially embolden Iran to do even more, right? To be, to be even more of a regional player. It could also embolden them to say to the, the Russians, you know, you have to give us even more support and you have to help us more because the Americans are coming in and doing all of these actions. It also delegitimizes the United States when we say, you know, you shouldn't be assassinating other people. Because if we're doing something that, while not legally an assassination, if we're doing stuff that is assassination adjacent, it's very hard for us to have the moral authority to say, well, you, you're not allowed to do this, right? We're allowed to do this because we had these legitimate reasons. And so while it's hard to then be held to a standard that other people won't hold themselves, if we don't do that, what are we? So I'm Tim Fortin, actually from Seton Hall University. First of all, forgive my ignorance, but um, I'm wondering just in general, like the quintessential example that you gave of, of declaring war was the Congress declaring war on Japan. That's obviously like big deal, serious war on Japan. How does like a smaller, a smaller operation like whatever, some of the rationale is, hey, our, sem our, our uh, embassy is attacked in Iran. Right. We're not declaring war on Iran. We're, we're engaging in an operation to, to deter that. So it would, in some ways, it seems like one, one argument would say this isn't even a declaration of war. So, so where, where, do those, where does a smaller operation like that fit in where it's, we're not declaring war, this is an act of deterrence. I'm just, I'm just interested, even constitutionally, where something like that would fit in, as far as like vis-a-vis -vis the War Powers Act. Um, it, it fits in with, uh, let's say, defense budgets and things like that. So you would say uh, the president is allowed to use, conceptually, $100 million for dealing with questions in Kosovo, for example. Right? So every year we have an appropriations for the U.S. military as they continue to engage in you know, the former Yugoslavia area in general, Kosovo in particular. And otherwise, besides that, you know, if you have an embassy that was attacked or something along those lines, presidents then have the ability to, to defend that, that embassy because that's defending American soil as well as American people. So the president already has appropriations for doing that kind of action. They can then ask for emergency appropriations, and that's where the Congress can use the power of the purse to say, we're not giving this to you. Or alternatively, sure, here you go. And so that's where that would fall in constitutionally, is that as long as they have the budget themselves or it's already been appropriated, even if it wasn't allocated for Yemen or Kenya or whatever, they can use it in that way. And then, like I said, if they need more money, they can ask for it. 
and Congress can say yes or no. They almost always say yes, though, because once you're in the middle of an operation, it's very hard to use the power of the purse to draw down, because you look like the bad guy. So once a president has actually acted on even a smaller scale operation, he pretty much has the consent of Congress, because it's really hard for them to remove their consent. Good afternoon, ma'am. Alex DiBodesti. I'm studying history here at Notre Dame. And was the resignation of senior military officials, notably retired General Mattis, who was acting as Secretary of Defense, and uh, Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer, should we be alarmed that the President of the United States might be using the military in an unconstitutional manner? And uh, should be alarmed that he's replacing these heads of military with mm. people that would be more conducive to his agenda and his uh, unconstitutional means? Is that why these prior uh, heads resigned? Uh, it's definitely disconcerting that Trump is inclined to hire yes-men and hire people who are uh, perfectly willing to go along with whatever it is that he wants. It's also very disconcerting that uh, we, we can see that people who defy him or people who are inclined to disagree with him are being uh, unceremoniously removed from office, uh, be they actually appointed individuals or people who, oh, actually mostly appointed individuals or people who were just working for the president. I... I think that it's then showing a constitutional moment where there's some people who are inclined to say, I'm going to try and approach this delicately. If you look at the kinds of things that people are asking for from Trump, and if you look at the kinds of things that people are asking for from uh, some of the Democratic candidates, I'll say it that way, you see that there's a genuine sense that the system isn't working. So you can't just fix it by you know, going through the regular constitutional means. You have to really blow things up in some sort of dramatic way. So could there be some kind of arguments uh, similar to, say, Lincoln, where you would say, you know, did Lincoln really expand the, presidency's, the president, presidential powers too far and then create this precedent? You can make that case, and people do. And similarly, you could say that FDR kind of warped the, congressional, the constitutional system, but he did so in an effort to solve a problem that he saw was so great that the Constitution had to be warped. So people can make the case at the time of Trump, to move through history again, that things are so broken, right? The constitutional system is so broken that you need people who are willing to go around it or go um, against it in order to fix it. I don't agree with that as a perspective, but I think that that's why you see people like Mattis retiring because they say, like, I cannot stand by when someone's doing something like this to the constitu constitutional system that I've stood for my entire career. And conversely, you have people who think, no, we have to do this, right? We're doing what's important or what's necessary to fix the system, even though we're undermining it to fix it. So it's a good question. Maybe one, one more question. Yeah. I'm Aníbal Pérez from Political Science. Thanks for that presentation. It was super interesting. Um, I, I have a question with two parts. I guess it seems to me that U.S. constitutional law is quite often a model for other countries, and U.S. military strategy is quite often a model for, for other countries. So, so based on your presentation, kind of my immediate question is, are we observing a, a model of conflict that is likely to spread in which, rather than having the war in the traditional sense we used to think, or the war as we understood it in the, in the Vietnam era, um, are we going to have a pattern of conflict that is very targeted, very directed against killing individual individuals and so on with very high technology? And that seems to be a very messy model of conflict, right? And if that's true, if that's a potential outcome in the future, not only for the US, but as, as a military strategy for everyone, then I guess going back to your initial issue, what kind of uh, congressional organization do we need to keep track of that or, or to keep tabs on, on that type of strategy. Um, it seems to me that that's the kind of situation in which congressional committees would be very important, but co congressional committees are today less important than, than they used to be. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I think in order to try and deal with that, one of the things you have to do is realize that the, the targeted killings of individuals almost always does not relate to some sort of ticking time bomb, right? And so let's put those questions aside and say, all right, so if we have these you know, books of people that we know are bad actors who are trying to currently or in the near future do something that's um, going to negatively impact Americans, uh, American bases, American military, all these kinds of things, 
then you say, couldn't it be that because we know the threat's not imminent, right, as in coming right now or coming within a day, that you could then go to Congress and spend some time with Congress, or Congress in turn could force the presidency to say, you can't just have a kill list. You can't just have a group of people that you're you know, unceremoniously eliminating internationally. And so they could pass laws saying that similar to, well, that was an executive order, but they could pass laws saying you cannot use military force in this way and anytime we have appropriations, they could write that into the appropriations. So that would mean that um, if they write it into the appropriations and make it so that the president would have to either come to them for the money to do the drone strikes or come to them in order to like have oversight of where they're doing the, over, uh, where they're doing the drone strikes, that would improve things dramatically. And it would also then, again, you know, we're not the only ones with drones. And so you know, being people who are trying to tell other people how to live, it's very important that we don't then go against our own constitutional and moral principles in an effort to address questions or address issues that are harder to address through that constitutional system. So I think what I would say is, I'm not exactly sure how to get Congress to address that because it seems to them currently that that's an effective way of dealing with our problems. And so unfortunately, I don't have a better way than besides appropriations that they could then reassert themselves in that area. Join me now in thanking Professor Burns for a wonderful presentation. <laughs>